Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 76 movies, one cage. This is episode 74, Outcast from 2014. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and returning us once again from another movie in which a man punches a woman, it's Holly <laughs> Gore. Hello, Holly. Good morning, guys. Hi. So we were talking last night that Cage, since The Wicker Man, <laughs> there's been a lot of punching and sort of brutality against women. Mm-hmm. And then midway through this movie, Hayden Christensen just clocks a woman in the face. So you are back again for all this different sort of, I guess, I don't even know, cinematic brutality against women. Yeah, I'm interested that Cage is okay on his resume with, you know, being like, okay, I, I can ride a horse, I can punch out a woman, <laughs> um, go a pretty sweet top knot. He's sort of uh, handing off those uh, talents to the young Hayden Christensen in this one. So, you know, now Hayden gets to put punched woman in face on his resume. <laughs> it kind of feels like a lot of this movie is him passing the metaphorical buck or the reins or whatever to Hayden Christensen. Like, I know that it's the story within the movie that he trained him and he raised him, but it also kind of feels like at times this is the type of movie that a young Nicolas Cage would have done. But then you think about Hayden Christensen, who's been around as an actor for probably 20 or more years by this point, and you're just like, oh, he's not learning really much from Cage, I don't think. <laughs> like, this movie is so weird in so many different ways, but I think I, I sort of see it in a role that we might, have, we might see a lot from now on, and we just saw sort of in Joe, Cage as mentor with a young guy sort of teaching him the ways of the world. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it's sort of a shift for him as an actor too, but as well as keeping in the same reins. Like he's always played this protector of people in a lot of his films, right? Most for the most part, his mainstream work at least. And in here, he's sort of narrowing that down to a father figure for a young man in the past few cases. But he's had he's had a few daughters recently too. You know that that he's uh, had to go save, or you know they've been kidnapped and everything. So it, it's just taking that all to the next level. So this movie begins in the Middle East in the 12th century. And this is the type of movie that I thought it was going to be based on the cover art, based on the posters, based on the limited knowledge I had of this movie. And we're there for like 10 minutes? Yeah. And it kind of feels like Season of the Witch Part 2. Kind of. Because in the... In, I mean, it, ver- it very much feels like Season of the Witch <laughs> I Part 2. I thought they were reusing footage from the Crusade oh, battles in the Because it's the same thing. Instead of him and Ron Perlman, it's him and Hayden Christensen, and they are fighting holy wars, and Cage is literally the same character. Yeah. He is tired of the church, he's tired of the senseless violence, he's concerned about the women and children... He's just sort of tired of killing in the name of God in the middle of battle, which is a little bit of a change because I feel like Season of the Witch, he just sort of quit in between battles, kind of. Mm -hmm. Here just seems like they're about to go, like, raid a building or whatever, just kill a bunch of guys. He's like, nah, I'm done. And then, (laughs) you know, Hayden Christensen sort of kind of gets that message, too. Shortly later, we just cut to the Far East three years later, and like it's just a, we're just in China for the rest of the movie. Like it's such a weird tonal shift that I guess works, just was not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, I wanted more from that because in terms of setting it up, they basically do what you just outlined. They they do this battle, they have a few exchanges, but it doesn't really tell you so much about who they are or how much they've done up to this point. And then it just jumps over to start, you know, the other part of the movie. It's supposed to set something up, but what it set up, I have no idea. <laughs> this is what I thought we were going to get with Season of the Witch, but for a whole film. In, in that movie, we get a montage of the Crusades over the course of like 20, 15, 20 years or so. And and I thought this movie was going to be more Kingdom of Heaven style, where they're going to be fighting this holy war, and by the end of the film, they'll resolve their issues or, you know, they'll part ways. I, I had no idea that it's basically going to become like a kung fu film without any kung fu, really, you know? like Or yeah, any Chinese in it either. Mm, that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's strange. Like, what the other, the other thing is that I'm glad... I wrote down, like, one of my first notes in the movie is that the beginning, that I'm glad that they transitioned into what they did, because I feel like, I don't know if it's intentional, I don't think it's intentional, but I feel like they don't really know how to capture excitement or the proper action of the swordplay. It's just all super sloppy. Like, we see Cage in his helmet early on, and it's kind of like the beginning of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, where I'm like, wait, is that Cage? I can't really tell, because he's only on screen for, like, a quarter second at a time. Mm-hmm. Toward the end of the movie, when it's more martial artsy, kind of, and there's more like regular, just one-on-one sword fighting, the action is better captured. Not that it's necessarily the best, but it's handled much better. 
Here, where there's just battles of 25 versus 25 or whatever, it's just chaotic and not shot very well. Yeah, the camera was definitely too close. Like, for all these beautiful sword fight scenes, I wanted it to just pan out so I could see the whole range of what was happening, but I felt like it would just pan up into, like, the sword on the throat, and you couldn't see anything else, so there wasn't a real sense of, was this, like, a really great move he just made, or, like, what's going on? I had a lot of issue with the editing for, like, the first half of this movie, maybe. I kind of, I got used to it, but there was just, like, almost born or quantum of solace level of cutting, like, Michael Bay-ish, in a way, where you just couldn't really get, my eye couldn't fix on what was really going on. They just cut too much. The shots were too close or didn't have a nice flow to it. I I don't feel like they wanted to go for that confusion in the midst of battle feeling for the audience. I feel like they thought this was looking really cool and fast-paced action. To me, it just, yeah, it it was sort of bothersome at the start. Later, I think they cool their jets a little bit. Kind of important thing to note is that this is Hayden Christensen's first movie in four years that he took off from 2010 to 2014, and he came back for this movie. Why he came back for this one, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure, but he is pretty badass in this movie. For all the flack that he gets for the Star Wars prequels and sort of him just being this annoying little kid, I mean, I know this is not necessarily a huge movie. I think the budget was like $25 and it only had a theatrical release pretty much in China. But for this type of action movie that it's just predominantly action, I think he handles himself pretty well, And I was kind of surprised by how well he performed in this. Yeah, he's definitely enjoyable to watch on screen. Yeah, I gotta say, I thought he kicked a lot of ass in this movie. Um, I think all that Star Wars training really paid off for the sword fight sequences because he is clearly in the middle of those shots, like, doing that stuff with the stuntmen. Like, he is almost like part stuntmen, probably, having gone through that training, being the Jedi, you know, with all those, like, those sword sequences were great if nothing else in those prequels like a lot of good uh, action and stuff so it feels like he's got a great handle on that and when you build on that for him as sort of like an actor for his character like it really works you know i really got like the sense of him being a tough badass and i'm glad that it works as well as it does because after the first 10 minutes or so of the movie cage doesn't show back up until an hour in so if the hayden christensen stuff didn't work most of this movie would be, like, unbearable. The way that he goes to the Far East sort of becomes like a drunk, I guess? They sort of have, like, weird drunk vision camera that we sort of saw in Sunny a little bit. Yeah, I think he's and, a drinker and an opium addict, so that's what I got that, yeah. like, walked away with. And he goes over there, and there's this whole other thing that's completely unrelated to the, the Crusades, that's completely unrelated to whatever Cage is doing, where there is a king, and he has two sons and a daughter, And his older son is this great war hero, but the king says it's time for peace and he wants his younger son to take the throne. And then the older son comes back from war and the king shuttles the young boy off with his sister. And the older brother kills the king and wants to assume the throne, but now he has to find his other brother and sort of kill him too. It sounds like a weird plot, and it is, and it's also because it just sort of comes out of nowhere. Like, for a movie, like we were saying earlier, that I thought was going to sort of spend the entire time in or around the Middle East, it's like a prequel and not even part of the same movie, almost. So I had uh, one of my famous theories while watching this movie, especially when we do this, one of our famous Cage Club time jumps, which, you know, happen a lot. (laughs) They happen a lot in his movies. I got the sense that this is where the film was going to start. All that sort of crusade stuff and battle stuff was going to be told through flashback. But they were like shooting that stuff and they shot a lot of it and they probably thought it looked great. And producers were like, more of that, front load it, let's establish those guys. And maybe it'll feel artistic if they drop out of the picture for half the time. And we just completely restart the movie 15 minutes in with the actual story. This is also another movie that where some logic in the beginning could have just vanquished the need for the rest of it. Because if the king had just stood up when all the Black Guard came in and said, hey guys, I made my other son king because I want peace, so don't listen to this guy, you would have had a whole room full of witnesses that would have been like, all right, we can, you know, sign up for that. But instead... They all let themselves get ordered out. You know, there's the he stabs the king and kills him and then tells the black guard that it was actually um, the prince baby brother. But I just don't know why the king would have been like, hey, this is what I'm like. He's so vague about it. And if he was just forthright and been like, this is what I decided. Sorry. The rest of the film wouldn't have happened. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it would have been his dying words, right? Like my final decree and all that. So it really would have carried a tremendous amount of weight and, and importance and no one could have really denied the king's dying wish or anything like that. So yeah, it's a little strange. <laughs> It's kind of amazing how few people pay any credence to, like, what's going on at all. Like, the older brother's just like, take him out, find my younger brother. And, like, everybody goes but one guy, and one guy's just like, wait a minute. He's like, you you watch yourself. Like, I got my eye on you, and that's it. Like, there's one guy who thinks that this is maybe a little bit fishy. I don't know. I mean, I guess that sort of has to be for the movie that they're making, that it's not going, they're not going to spend time here with some other guy that we don't know trying to investigate what actually happened to the king. Like, I understand why they do it, but it's amazing how blind people are to just sort of keep the plot going. Oh, yeah. There's boatloads of dudes that offer themselves up to get chopped up for something that, you know, there was just like, oh, well, this guy told me that this guy told him that this guy told me I have to get the prince. So let's do it. Yeah, it feels like everyone is just dying to fight no matter what, right? And, like, maybe that is the message that the movie's <laughs> trying to get across is, like, the king is done. Like, everybody, it's just a culture of violence in the world. And by having a peaceful boy king, like, perhaps this can get reversed somehow. So, like, everyone in the movie is just like, you want to fight? Let's fight. Like, I'm, I'm signing up. Like, he even calls in some general. And he's like, general, I, I need more men. And the general's like, yeah, we've been waiting to fight. Like, let's, <laughs> let's just do it. And they're also looking for the seal. Now, what is the seal? Because they're like, where is the seal? What is what is the seal that they're it's looking the for? Do we know. So there's no there is no seal. No, I mean like it's a seal, but it doesn't. It's meaningless. Like it's just like if you have the seal, then you're the king. So like he gives the seal to the boy and says, oh, okay. go to like the monastery and they'll make sure like it's official and everything. And so the brother is like, you know, kill the boy, get the seal. So really, when saying like, where is the seal? He's just trying to say, find my brother. Pretty much, I think so. Or, I mean, I think he can just, you know, if he just gets the seal retrieved, he doesn't really care about the boy. He could kill him, like, any time. So it's mostly just, oh, okay. like, get the seal. That makes sense, because they were making a big deal about it, and I'm just like, I must have missed something, because I don't know what is going on here. Yeah, it's on screen for all of 15 seconds when it's taken out from its little hiding spot in the wall and given into um, the prince's wallet. But even at the end, he doesn't pull it out to be like, hey, crowd of people, here it is, the thing that you've been looking for. <laughs> it's just like, um... No, all right, we're, we're going to just take it for your word that you have it on your person. Okay, here's a question. <laughs> if I took that seal, would I be king? That's what it seems like, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, Yeah, I think that's the deal. Like It supersedes everything somehow. So it's not even about bloodline. It's just about whoever has this like little scrap of paper, this little seal or whatever. Yeah, because you could always lie and say, like, I'm a distant relative or the brother they never knew or whatever. I mean, like, you see, like, people just seem really naive back in these times, like, according to this movie, you know? Like, motivations are sort of all over the map. That's what the movie seems to be getting at, is that, like, if you have the seal, that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. So give the um, seal to Cage, and let's just get it over with <laughs> and let him be king. So now, Holly, I have an important question for you that Mike and I were discussing last night, and I want to get your opinion as a woman. Okay. In recent Cage movies, including The Wicker Man, pretty much the last, like, ten years or so, we've at least noticed, and we're going to go through at some point, we're going to go through all the Cage movies again and see if this has been a trend throughout, and I don't think it is. I think the first real egregious, terrible casting of a, casting of a woman was in National Treasure, where just they give Diane Kruger nothing to do. In this movie, there's pretty much, you know, a couple women. The main one is this princess. Mm -hmm. And so Mike and I were talking last night, and I want to get your opinion before we share what we, the sort of the conclusion we came to. Mm -hmm. Is she a strong female character or not? She's tasked with protecting her brother, so hooray, she's got something to do. But also at the same time, Hayden Christensen's tasked to protect her, and so she's just sort of there just with him. So did you see her like as a as a, a role of empowerment or not? I think she's totally a strong female character. I actually really watching the film, I liked her more than the prince. So even if it came to the point where the prince had gotten killed and she was suddenly like the princess of China, I would have been totally on board. No, I think she's definitely in control of her own destiny, even though Christensen is protecting her, but she orchestrated that. It's not like he swooped in and and saw her as a damsel in distress. She went into this bar full of guys and was like, hey, I need an escort. I'm going to pay and I'm going to like pick somebody out. And even when he denies her the first time, she goes after him and doesn't give up. And I really think for the most part, she's in control of her own destiny, even though she's been given um, the order by her father to protect the prince. 
and she's trying to get everyone to um, the generals. But really, she is just in charge and she's confident. Even in the scene where they meet the Indian caravan and there's the betrayal, she gets a little emotional, but even still, she's like, all right, well, we'll stop here for tonight. And then in the morning, we're going to get going. So, like, I'm still calling the shots. Like, she's cool. I really liked her. That's important. That's good. I'm glad to hear that because I wasn't sure because I thought that she was definitely a step in the right direction, but I was also kind of worried that she wasn't necessarily a fully-fledged independent woman. So I'm glad to hear that she worked and that, you know, it was a great character and good. Because that's that's sort of what Mike was leaning toward last night, I think. Right, Mike? That you were saying, finally, we get a woman who can sort of stand up for herself. Yeah, and I wasn't sure if it was just in comparison to the stuff we've seen lately. Because really, since Drive Angry with Amber Heard, like, there hasn't been someone that stood out to the forefront to really hold their own. And I'm just glad they use her, you know? And I feel like they use her appropriately. And they even address certain things. Like, the father says, you know, basically says, to her if this was a different time like you would be next in line you know there's like these little moments and she says and but he's like instead i need you to do something more important you know protect your brother and stuff and then later with hayden christensen at the campfire he's talking some i don't know exactly what he's saying but she kind of comes back and is like you know like i'm a i'm a woman like women stay home and take care of the kids sure but like that might even be harder than going off to war because when you come back from war we have to deal with you guys and your ptsd and it's like don't tell me like women aren't strong so like i think it's cool that they even try and go like an extra step beyond just showing it like they try and have the conversation in the movie a little bit and and it might be out of time for the setting but i like that they are addressing it the thing that definitely sealed it for me was jumping to the end of the movie you know when she gets stabbed and she's on the ground and he's like why did you do that And her list, in order, is my country, my brother, I think that's the second, but the last one is, and you. It's not most of all you. It's not like, but the most important thing was you. It's, nope, you come third, but I mean, you're also in this list. So she's definitely in control. That's important. I like that. I'm okay with that. I'm cool with that. I guess she sort of needs to be a strong, independent character, because for a long part of this movie, a long start of this movie... Hayden Christensen is not really on board, and she kind of keeps has to keep him in line, too. That he's only in it for the gold, he's only in it to sort of get his next fix or get his next drink. And even though he's sort of able to help, he doesn't really necessarily want to. He just sort of does it. It almost feels like he wants to do it, like in that, in that original scene where she walks in and he kind of stops the trouble, just so that like the place quiets down almost. You know, like, <laughs> I'm so yeah. hungover right now, I don't want to <laughs> hear noise. If what has to happen is me just kicking a bunch of guys' asses to do that, that's what I'm going to do. But I just want it to be quiet, because I just need to take a nap right now. He's such a mess for a lot of the movie that it has to be her, maybe behind the scenes a little bit, pulling the strings and making sure that things go smoothly. Mm-hmm. And I think he's even maybe sees an opportunity himself to use her situation to his benefit. Like, I got the sense, especially later on in the film, that he was at that bar waiting for someone or doing or looking for someone. Maybe the white ghost, is that... <laughs> is yeah. that the legend of a white ghost so they even think he's the white ghost so they drop little lines about like he's got a motivation we know him from sort of the beginning of the movie a little bit where did how did he stray so, like he's just so different from the opening of the movie it's very intriguing to me and i'm like okay he's got motivations of his own going on that's going to be sort of a mystery he'll agree to go along with her because like he's going to try and use her at first like that's sort of the situation i saw like it's not not like a complied sort of thing it's almost like a truce they have because they're both kind of dangerous in their own ways I, f- I feel like he wouldn't be so trustworthy if he didn't have his own agenda you mentioned that they have the white ghost there's also the white devil i mean this movie is sort of racist against white people which i guess is sort of fine because we've had some other not so great racism things in the past recently like they are very clearly as the title suggests outcasts or outsiders in this world what i kind of want to know and I, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit We don't really get a sense necessarily of what Cage was doing in the three years between, do we? That he goes from this being this guy in the Crusades of the Middle Ages, and maybe he says it in like his drunken stupor. I have no idea. Because there's scenes in this movie where he and he and Christensen are just both drunk and they're just both babbling to each other. I'm like, I don't know what is being talked about right now. So maybe he gave some of his backstory, but there's, you know, an hour of this movie and three years in these characters' lives where Cage somehow got from the Middle East to the Far East, it looks like he went off the rails. Like, I don't know what happened here, 
But I want to know more about that backstory. He was teaching all of China to speak English in those three years. <laughs> That's my guess. It seems like he took the long way around too. Like he went towards like America and walked around the world that way, and like wound up back in China, like on the opposite side or something. Like he is world wearied and like grizzled and just messed up by the time we see him. That is a whole other movie. I wish we saw. We get little drips and jabs, like you said, through his stupor and things like that. But it's almost the same with Hayden. We have even less information on what he's been up to. You know, it just seems like he's been doing opium and training on vagabonds at the bar like for three years he's just like has he just been sitting there like he was the one who was all about the glory and the war and his sort of fall or shift in character seems more extreme and yet i'm just more interested in, in cage because like he's just so much more dramatically interesting than what he's doing and what's going on with him i mean really for a movie that's so character driven for so much of it it's amazing how little attention they pay to just telling you like where these characters were they're like okay here they are and now here they are again. And like, let's just, you know, whatever. Like, I know that it's mostly an action movie. It's not necessarily 100% character driven, but it is for the most part. And I feel like, and Mike and I are trying to come up with what this is sort of called, this genre of movie, but movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where you have like these slow kind of introspective moments between these scenes of action. And it feels like knowing the characters is a big reason you get invested in these movies. And they sort of try that here, but they're just like, oh, these three years that we skipped? Like, you can skip them, too. Like, nothing happened. No, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's really fuzzy as to what kicked off this kind of, like, haunted past thing. Because yeah. even when you see them when, uh, when they're crusaders, they say, all right, this ends today, this ends with us. Which signifies, like, the end of a journey, the end of a battle. So whatever happens in the, like, what were they, in a church? Or, well, no, not a church. But wherever they were, like, conquering that day, you don't get any sense of, like, what horrific event happened. Other than maybe what went on in the back room but even that i mean yeah. if, if you've made a career full of chopping up dudes with swords you know i i don't think that's your first foray into seeing that level of violence so i just i don't know why that was the catalyst that kicked everything else off and yeah there's really no details given it is it's just literally this event three years later and okay we have ghosts that follow us now yeah and that's sort of why i felt that crusading stuff in the opening maybe that was meant to be used throughout as like a flashback to flesh out these guys <laughs> because it almost it's it's like even more confusing to have it all at once in the opening and while it wouldn't tell you everything you need to know it would give you bits and pieces throughout to latch onto. and you're right like the catalyst about like going in the back room and they do like that game of thrones thing where like the women kill the kids and then they kill themselves and it's like i think you guys would have seen that like a couple times by now it just didn't seem significant enough to cause their rift but who knows we don't even know their relation right there's even a weird flashback hint when he's teaching the king how to be an archer where we see that cage trained a young hayden christensen to be an archer as well and it's like are is that his son i don't know it's never defined. I guess. I mean, I never really thought if it was his son or not. Maybe because the movie's not interested at all in letting us know whether or not it's his son. I just sort of assumed that they were close, that he was sort of a substitute father figure. But I don't know. Maybe they are father-son. Like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's, it is strange. <laughs> um, so they are on their journey, and they're trying to get the son to... Where are they trying to get the son to? They're basically trying to get him to safety... And then bring him somewhere so he can ascend the throne. Yeah, where, it's, it's, where, where's, what's the name of the place that they're actually bringing him to? It's a city, I believe. I don't know. It's very much like the plot of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, though, right? Where they have to escort a boy to safety. <laughs> so they're on the way there, and they see this very fancy woman in this caravan. They're like, my lady needs privacy. She's a very private woman. She wants journey to the town. And they're like, all right, here you go. Hayden Christensen pays for the gold, and they get along. And then once they get to the town... And she even pays off a guard to, like, let them through. Like, oh, this woman's actually sort of legit. Basically, almost immediately, probably the next day, you're like, oh, she betrayed us. And this is when Christian just, just punches her out. The guards come to take the kids, and she's like, these kids are worth more than you ever have ever any idea. Like, your cut alone would be, and she doesn't even get to finish the sentence because he just nails her in the face. And she goes down, and they sort of escape. 
And I guess this is sort of the turning point, right? Where he's sort of been, up to this point, kind of there just for the money, just for the payday. But now, he kind of feels a connection to them, maybe? And wants to make sure they're actually protected instead of just, who cares? Like, I'm just doing a job for money. And this is when he's like, all right, we got to get out of here. This is my duty. I'm going to protect these kids. Yeah, I think I think the Boy King, that archery thing, the flashback, like, started to trigger something in him. And I'm getting the sense that he's on his own sort of quest to find Cage again, or, you know, what ha- like reconcile maybe, or just to right some wrongs or whatever he's going through psychologically to get to the bottom of it. And so it just seems like his purpose or uh, like he is sort of seeing how people are depending on him now in a way which has never happened before so i kind of like his direction here where he's like oh shit like i can have a duty sort of like cage in in season of the witch was like i can serve you know i don't have to serve the army of god but i could sort of serve god my own way by doing what's right and protecting <coughs> these kids and you know keeping them safe and all that and maybe it's not just all about me anymore And I also kind of got the sense, and maybe I was just reading into it, but do you think he's falling in love with the princess? Hmm. I think they want us to feel some connection there. Like, I definitely think that she's falling for him first, in a way. I don't, she's, it seems like she's putting out feels, and he doesn't understand. He's just, like, sort of a dense guy that doesn't really get it at first. And Yeah, I think by the end of this, they are, you know, they're even holding each other upside down in sort of a yin and yang position by the end of this movie on the ground, like, you know, when they're holding hands and stuff. So, yeah, I think by the end, even though he leaves, doesn't he leave? I think he leaves. Like, there is sort of this bond between them. But the, it can't be, right? I mean, it's just, you know, in their two worlds, she has to go be a princess and he has to go be a bandit. Yeah, she totally has a crush on him. And he's playing that hard-hearted loner. And he's like, no, you can't break down my walls. No, I'm not even going to tell you my name because I don't want you to get close to me. You know, she's like, no, tell me your name. Like, oh, and even, you know, when he gets injured, she's like, oh, is he going to make it? Like, you can tell she's totally into him. And the whole plot there is like, can she, her love melt? his icy heart and it does by the way speaking of names do either of you know any characters because <laughs> i do not i know the princess is leanne um but that's because i i liked her a lot and paid attention to her i know there's a guy named general gao but <laughs> i think it but do was, you know who general gao is thought, or you just know that he's exists in the world i know they say get me general gao i think it was the guy with the eye patch but it could be the guy with the golden helmet but yeah, I did okay. not pick up anybody's names. I heard them try and say, like singing something that seemed like a reference to a name, but I didn't have my subtitles on, and I'm just sort of rolling with it, you know. <laughs> it's like, eh. like it's honestly kind of amazing how often these cage movies just have literally no interest in telling you characters' names. Like it's crazy. Yeah, well, Cage gets, uh, you know, in a tradition of Cage Club, he goes by two names, whatever his name is that we never picked up, and White Ghost. So right. <laughs> So I, I was just calling him White Ghost. That's fine. Yeah, he has a very uh, noble name. It's it's Ghislaine. Yes. Oh, I did, I did see that on IMDb, but I don't know if I ever heard that in the movie. I'm sure I might have, but I don't remember hearing it. I don't know. It's around this point in the movie, after they escape from the almost trap, Cage just reappears. And I know that Holly has a lot to say about his voice. And I just wrote down in my notes, WTF voice, because <laughs> it is, like, you don't, you sort of see him, but you more so hear him before you see him. Hurts. Good. If it was my choice, I would have let you rot. My companion's safe. Black Gardner's thick as flies on a farting goat's ass because of you. And it's just like, wait, what Like, what happened in these three years? They do not care. They do not want to let you know what happened. But like something very bad and very dark and very bitter happened to Cage between the time that they were in the Middle East and the Far East. And he just comes out of the gate swinging very upset at Hayden Christensen. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning of the movie, even when he first has his introduction, there's definitely, I was like, oh, no, this is bad Batman voice all over again. Because it's like he keeps switching in and out of the accent. It's very deep. Like, you can tell he's putting it on. But yeah, when they re-meet him later in the film, it's twice as extreme. And it's just delightful because it's the same, like, ridiculous cage lines, but in that deep voice. Like, when he's like, I should have left you for crow meat. It was a treat. We need to talk. We have nothing to say. 
Please. I should have left you in the woods for Chromate. I love just about every single thing about this performance here. Me too. Like, this is just, I was so happy. Like, I was clapping and cheering and laughing. <laughs> I was just in joy for the last, like, 30 minutes of this movie when he was on screen. I mean, I, I had talked to Joey over the course of Cage Club how, like, what would I like to see Cage do? You know, number one is probably a Western, and, and pretty close up to number two is I want to see him in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie as an evil pirate. This is like what I was picturing. I couldn't believe it. I was so down with this performance. I mean, he, he's got, like, the pirate thing. He's kind of got a Fu Manchu thing happening. He's got one eye missing for the third time, Season of the Witch, Drive Angry, and now this. And he's, you know, wearing snakes as jewelry. And he's just this weird mountain shaman bandit king. And I'm loving every frame of this. I'm not sure what my favorite line is. I know for sure what my favorite action is. Because when he appears to Hayden Christensen, he has a snake in each hand. <laughs> And he's, like, using them, I guess, as sort of intimidation factor. I don't know 100% what's going on here. But he uses a snake to scratch his beard. Like, this is... I don't understand. Like, this almost has to be a cage improvisation on set. Because I don't think anybody else would even think to do this. You know? Like, who would write in the script... And now the white ghost scratches his beard with a snake. Like, that's not a thing that crosses anybody's mind, but totally makes sense within this cage universe that he's created. It's almost like because he's been off screen for an hour, he feels the need to pack in so much in the next half an hour that he's on screen. And it is. It's delightful. In a way, I guess you can sort of piece together what he's been up to for three years. I mean, his transformation is just, like, insanely mind-boggling. You know, how do you go from this warrior-type guy to playing with snakes in your mountain village? And, like, he's got the wife and everything. Like, that's my favorite moment, when she just sits down next to him and he's like, what is it, woman? And, like, all that stuff to her. And she doesn't have to say a word. I mean, you don't know at that point that she has no tongue. And it's part of what he went through through during that time but i just thought it was just like so great like oh she didn't have to say anything he like gets it from a look and just is always used to her winning conversations without even speaking and like he's being presented as this tough badass but he's like his wife like controls it i don't know just like every nuance every improv every little thing was just so new and strange to me and i was just eating it up going back to answer your question favorite line I would have to say it's definitely at the end when he's dying and he says, I see you, woman. I see you. <laughs> There's no love in that. I see you. Woman. And he's a warrior, too, here, you know? Like, he is mm -hmm. back in action mode. Like, they do some cool stuff. They have, like, a three-prong, like, attack they do with, like, the arrows, the spears, and then, like, the sword fighting and all that kind of stuff. And he's holding his own. There might be a couple more shots of him from the back than there are of Hayden from the front. But I got the idea that, you know, he is still capable of this kind of stuff. You know, he even looks younger than he did in the past, like, two or three movies. And just, like, he's having a lot of fun. He just has these lines where he's like, I am the white ghost. And it's just like he is into this as little or as much sense as it makes. He's just there. Please, he lives. For now. You're the outlaw they call the white ghost? I am the white ghost. But no one calls me outlaw, child. Not to my face! I wrote lines down. I wrote quotes down. <laughs> I don't know what they refer to, really. Somebody says, I think about Hayden Christensen, they say he believes he is damned, and Cage says, he's right. And it's just like, how do you know? Like, what? Like, what is... <laughs> we fought alongside one another. He believes he's damned. He's right. We were all of us killers. But he became... more than that. That's what warriors do. Some get a taste for blood. He's not one of them. There was a time I wanted that to be true, as much as you do now. There's like a whole line about like what happened to Cage, like how did he get here, 
and I think that this is sort of the answer to my questions from earlier, but also, I have no idea, I have no recollection of what actually happened at Cage, even though there's a line that I wrote down with a timestamp, knowing, okay, this is Cage's backstory, and it still does not sink in into my brain. So what happened to you? The White Ghost? Bandits? I tried my hand as a merchant, but the Black Guards took all I had. My wife. She's good with a knife, eh, lad? <laughs> but at one time, she had the most beautiful singing voice. But the guards cut out her tongue. Blinded my right eye. But I still have hair, which is all that really matters. If Shing becomes king, this land will burn. All lands burn, Jacob. You know that better than anyone. I have to take a piss. He's more of a character here than he has been in a lot of recent movies. You know, in Joe, he was this normal guy. In all these straight-to-DVD movies, he's pretty much just like a dad. I mean, he hasn't really been this kind of over-the-top crazy character since, like, Drive Angry. So it's been almost ten movies where he's just sort of been himself. And I'm so into him. Crazy makeup, you know, missing an eye like you said, crazy hairdo, crazy voice. I am on board. I just want to soak it in. I don't really care what he's saying. I just want to hear him talk. Do you want my blood? Make it onto your uh, your notable line list. His last line, right? Yeah, and he and it, I love it because he repeats it. He's like, "Do you want my blood? Do you want my blood?" As if there's like somebody else's blood. Like, oh no, we actually, <laughs> you know, the other guy with the magic blood. It's so insane. You want my blood? You want my blood? Oh, it's the best. I got uh, two more lines. I mean, one line that would just sound normal, anyone else saying it, is uh, four bombs per bag. And he somehow makes that sound like a song lyric. Four bombs per bag. Later, I think he says, ah, opium's your poison. I fancy beer or something of alcohol. Like, ah, we each have our poisons. Like, I thought that was a touching reunion between two former warriors. Yeah, and if you do nothing oh. else with this movie, just watch the 25 minutes where Cage comes back. You can walk away satisfied. From an hour, basically just like an hour exactly, until an hour 25 when Cage, for maybe the eighth or ninth movie, is killed. And we're going to get to that. We're not going to skip over that because it is a fantastic death. Yes. Those, like, 24, 25 minutes are the best. Like, you can skip the first seven because Cage is just sort of befuddled and against the church. This is prime... Pe- like, this is almost reminiscent in ways of Deadfall Cage. Mm. You know, as soon as he's gone, I just check out. I didn't take any notes on the movie after he's gone. Like, I'm done. Like, that's, that's all I'm interested in. It's worth watching this first hour of this movie, which is also kind of beautifully shot and really well done, and, like, it tells a cool story, not the story expected. Even if you're not into that, it's worth getting through that just to get this little 20-minute chunk. Yeah, I'd almost say it's like a never-on-Tuesday situation where it's like, you know, you could just go watch the clip of him on YouTube, but if you sort of suffer up to that point and beyond, it makes his appearance just, like, legendary, you know? It's just like this oasis in a desert. And and this movie sort of has this strange benefit of being pretty beautiful. Like, the editing calms down, and you're able to see the scenery and the real locations and the props and the costumes are incredible. I really like the princess is sort of... Look, she almost looked like a mage from the original Final Fantasy with, like, her white cloak and everything like that. That that was really cool. They formed, like, this really diverse-looking party of travelers along the way and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you could watch a lot worse. And then you'd get, like, this great payoff when Cage returns. And it's just, you know, amazing, amazing. Speaking of Never on Tuesday, this is almost entirely unrelated. But for maybe only the second time, maybe third time, I feel like I'm missing one, there's a campfire scene. And Never on Tuesday's campfire scene is notable because aside from Cage, it's maybe the best moment of the movie. And so here, sitting around a campfire, I'm just like, oh, we're brought back to Never on Tuesday. So it's weird that you bring it up in a completely different context, but also 
sort of perfect. Yeah, and also the campfire scene, that's when they start talking about like the ghosts following them around. A Hayden character asks Nick Cage, do your ghosts speak? And he's like, no, what would they say if they did? And I think it's something to the extent of, you have to make up for this. And he's like, okay, well, we'll know when to do it, just not now. Which again, hints at this like, okay, maybe we were like cursed or haunted or we feel so strongly about what we did, like we made our own ghosts. But it's just this little snippet that, doesn't really give you anything to hold on to and I really wish like that's a part where I guess they would have flashed back or really fleshed out more what happened in the past three years but they just tease it and then keep zooming along. It's kind of incredible how emotionally dismissive Cage's character is at moments, right? Where Hayden is like, we've had a fight. And he's like, no, I don't. It's not my war. You know, whatever. Like, he's totally <laughs> willing to just, like, sit on the sidelines or find an excuse to wallow. You know, like, that's what it seems like. Like, oh, pity. I'm sitting in my pity up on my hill, like, all by myself with my concubines and stuff. And Hayden is really there to sort of, like, shake him out of it. But it's not until they're literally, like, at his front door where he's like all right now i'll fight and he's like it's a good thing i set up shop here because it's strategically valuable and almost like this guy waiting for his death or something you know he's like i had a destiny and now i'm just waiting for it to come take me take me away i'm just waiting for it instead of chasing it and destiny catches up to them in a hurry as they all sort of get cornered into a cave right like they're in a cave or something like that Mm -hmm. they're there's somewhere where they're backed into a corner. All of the older prince's guards, all these guys just dressed purely in black, look really cool. They approach the cave. Cage is like, let me defend you guys. And he goes out holding a bloody sword, sort of like a baseball player. It is him against the world. Like, it is him against 25 guys. And for the most part, he's handling his own. And it's amazing. As the fights go on, he gets slashed in the back and slashed in the chest and stabbed in the chest and slashed in the leg and slashed in the face. He gets thrown through the ringer and eventually gets killed. But this is maybe, and Holly, I think you should feel honored that not only are you in two of the most notable punching women movies, (laughs) you are in two of the most notable cage death movies. Like These are both, both in The Wicker Man and in this movie. They're both spectacular, A-plus quality deaths. Totally. What I love about one of the moves that he does is when he kind of knows it's over, and there's about four spears in him in different places, but he's still moving forward. You know, it's almost like that Leonidas thing from 300, where it's like... He's just trying to get, like, his hands around the old prince who feels like he deserves the throne. And, like, Cage just keeps walking until, like, they stab him so many times that, like, he physically can't take a step forward. And then he dies. It's <laughs> just pure primal animal at the end there. Just will to fight kind of thing going on. It was spectacular. And he doesn't go down easy. He, like, he has, a, like, a remarkable fight sequence here. And, like, this is just what I was saying. Like, Cage just feels like... like he can still do this stuff like it would have been cool it's great what we get but i don't want to ruin the mystique now of finding out how he turned into this character from those three years but i could take a whole movie of him doing stuff like this you know like even at his age i feel like don't put him in star wars necessarily but put him in a movie of that kind where there's lots of sword play action adventure you know like a robin hood or a zorro or something like that or just a pirates of the caribbean there like you go asking for exactly he would fit perfectly you could just do this character there for America, like, because most people haven't seen this film, I'm betting, you know, this is not a wide American release, so do this character, refine it a little bit, and, you know, put him on a boat in the water and have him run across Johnny Depp. That would just be a tour de force. And so after Cage dies, all hope is kind of lost, and it's just there's still way too many guards left. This is all sort of a blur for me, but eventually gets to the point where the prince comes out and somebody recognizes him, right? And they're like, put down your swords, like, this is our king. And then that's just sort of how it ends. Like, I know Hayden Christensen lives. Other people die, though, right? Who di- does, who dies here? So they're all in the cave. You know, there was the initial blast. Here's how I took it. That Cage is like, okay, I'm going to buy you guys some time and try to fight as many dudes as I can, but I'm going to die in the process. But you guys get out of here while I do that. And everyone's like, okay. So Cage goes out, you know, takes out 20 dudes. And then as he's dying, Hayden Christensen's like, Mm, guys, I think we're going to change this up. 
and let's just confront the guys that have been chasing us and see how it turns out. They reverse course and they go out and it's it's almost like Nick Cage's sacrifice was for nothing because all of a sudden they're yeah. like, yeah, uh, you know, we're just going to like confront the bad guy head on here. Like, let's do this. And if only they had conferred about that five minutes earlier, maybe there could be five people riding away on horses at the end rather than just four. Yeah, the guy even steps aside and shows Cage's dead body, and he was like, see that? Like, you just made it worthless. Like, it's all right. He gave yeah. you a shot to get away, and you came back, you idiots. And then it becomes sort of a one-on-one duel between the not-king, the, the prince, and uh, Hayden Christensen. And again, sort of like Game of Thrones, someone, like, interjects because the prince is losing, kind of like how Jamie Lannister was losing to Ned. Like, someone shoots some arrows into Hayden Christensen to give the prince the advantage, and that's when the second-in-command steps up and he's like nobody raises another bow or else they get their head chopped off and everyone's like okay okay i like my head uh and everyone puts their bows down and that's when hayden christensen finally kills the evil prince yes and the good prince ascends to the throne i have to admit as you can tell from my question earlier i sort of checked out after cage died (laughs) i do remember seeing all this but i know that at the end it's sort of like the end of season of the witch right where there's like the two piles of rocks with swords and Hayden Christensen's sort of just looking at them, right? Mm-hmm. At least one is Cage. Who's the other one? I thought it may have been his wife that they paid tribute to both of them, but that's not really clear either because it's not, I think maybe it's set up to make you think it's Leon because she does get stabbed in the whole foray at the end. But then, no, she's like right there and she's healthy. So I thought it was his wife. Because what's weird, wait, whose wife? Hayden Christensen's wife or Cage's wife? Cage's wife. Because she's not really mentioned in this movie at all until sort of his life flashes before his eyes, right? And he's like, I see you. And then he just goes to heaven, I guess, to be with her. Yeah, there's the one story how the Black Knights cut her tongue out because Cage wouldn't, like, comply with moral standards or whatever, like, was going on. He didn't like the Empire, so they sort of crippled her. But, yeah, at the end, I I was like, it's either got to be the wife or because they wouldn't bury the evil prince next to Cage, right? He'd probably still be buried in, like, the mausoleum somewhere or something. So by default, I'm like, yeah, it's it's the happy couple reunited. And Hayden sort of, yeah, he goes off. Off to wander the land, right? Like he doesn't stay behind. He's gonna walk the earth. He's gonna walk outcast too. The movie starts and ends like season of the witch. They're in the crusades, and at the end, it's the only survivors, pretty much, mm-hmm. looking at their fallen comrades. It's just it's strange, but it's also sort of exciting. And I like this movie a lot more than season of the witch for different reasons, for multiple reasons. Much better movie than Season of the Witch. I mean, this isn't necessarily, you know, by American standards, perhaps, you know, I mean, it's not an American film either. We should say that, you know, like this is a Chinese produced film, right? They definitely different ideas about pacing and story and plot and, you know, structure and things of that nature. So, yeah, I think that actually makes this a little more interesting, too, than your everyday American movie. I read online that because they wanted to do a cinematic release in China, they had to follow some pretty strict standards as to what could be shown, what couldn't be shown, what could be said, what couldn't be said. So in a lot of this filming and the dialogue and shooting, they were going by those guidelines because that's where they wanted it to flourish in that market. Mm. Well, we also learned from Lindsay Gibb that Cage sort of sees this whole second wave of his career making movies in China. And so this could be sort of the first step into that market. Like, I think he's setting up, like, his Saturn... I don't know if it's Saturn Films or if it's another studio he's going to make, but there's going to be, like, he's going to do a whole lot of these kind of movies. So I can see that makes sense that he's sort of following all these guidelines, get in on the ground floor of China, and then open up the world of Cage to another billion people. So while we're talking about that, the movie cost about $25 million to make, it made almost $4 million in China and almost another million in other territories worldwide for a total of like $4.8 million. Even before the movie came out, the producer, Jeremy Bolt, announced plans for a sequel. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know who's going to be in it. I don't know if it's going to be Hayden Christensen walking the earth, but it's in the works. And the only other thing that I want to note, or the only thing, other thing I feel is worth noting, because none of these actors have ever been in another Cage movie, The director, Nick Powell, this was the first thing he ever directed. Other than this, he's predominantly a stuntman. He's got stunt roles or stunt credits in like 115 movies. So I can see, I feel like that's happened before, right, Mike? 
Haven't we had other stunt people just, sort of be directors? Well, just in Rage, in the last episode, like a lot of the cast were stunt that too, persons. That's yeah. But this guy's a, this is his first directorial debut, but he's done tons of second unit direction on tons of really great action films, you know, Braveheart and Gladiator and stuff like that. Like, he's no slouch, like, when it comes to this type of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, maybe this was somewhere along the line, him and he, you know, this seems like the kind of movie, you know, you would give a second unit director to sort of get comfortable shooting a feature length film. And I thought that was kind of interesting, just that this this guy comes from the second unit and like got bumped up to uh, to his own feature. And so that is Outcast. Holly, do you have anything in your notes that we didn't cover already that you wanted to make sure we covered? No, I think that's everything. The only thing that I, I, well, I mean, yeah, I liked this movie overall. I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was something that you could definitely have on in the background and not really pay too much attention to and walk away satisfied. The only thing that I thought would have really made it amazing for me is if some of the Chinese characters spoke Chinese. I felt like this could have benefited a lot from maybe some people having English dialogue, but if all the other things had just Chinese with subtitles, I thought it would have been a lot more authentic. I wonder what level of depth that would have added like Mm. that's the one thing i really missed was the whole language thing was definitely a hurdle to get over for me yeah i definitely agree while i was sitting there going like this is just great that you know we have all these major roles being portrayed by natives of their homeland i thought that was terrific but yeah if they had just had some subtitles you know i got into that a a couple times at cage club where they do sort of this kind of thing everyone just speaks english but even if they had just spoken english to hayden christensen you know like to get some english in there but yeah it just would have been on such another level if they had uh, actually pulled the trigger and just spoken chinese in this film would have been amazing mike any final notes that we didn't cover anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to i believe we got there i believe it's all all right so thank you very much, Holly, for coming back. You've been on two movies that I, fe- I feel like the general public might not be too crazy about. But I think that both sort of exceeded. They're both at least very entertaining movies. So I think you picked a couple good movies to be on. Yeah, I, I thought that they were a treat. So I, I'm happy with my picks. So thank you for stopping by, and I'm glad that you were happy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So for all things Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Holly Gore, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Cage Club.